Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll visit the home of Florida writer Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings in Cross Creek. She could only write here. This was really her place of inspiration. We'll discuss Hugh Willoughby's trek across the Florida Everglades in 1898, Willoughby decided that he would start from the western edge that was less explored, the 10,000 Islands region, and head east. This way, he thought, if he just continued to head east, he would at one point run into Henry Flagler's railroad. And we'll talk about the contentious 1916 election. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Why did I choose you? What did I see? I saw the heart you had so That's Barbara Streisand singing a song from the Broadway musical production of the Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings book, The Yearling. The show had only three performances in 1965, but every other version of the story was highly successful. The Yearling was the best-selling book of 1938 and won the Pulitzer Prize the following year. An Oscar-nominated film version was made in 1946, and the book was adapted for television in 1994. Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings wrote The Yearling and almost all of her important work from the front porch of her Florida home. A visit to the Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings Historic State Park in the rural community of Cross Creek is like a trip back in time to the 1930s. The home there is furnished just as Rawlings had it when she was writing her Pulitzer Prize-winning novel The Yearling, her autobiography Cross Creek, and other works depicting the lives of Florida crackers. Rawlings' typewriter and notes sit on a table on the front porch, along with her ashtray and a pack of Lucky Strike cigarettes, as if the writer has just gotten up to get a glass of iced tea from the kitchen. Each room of the house contains furniture and personal items that belong to Rawlings or are very similar to what the beloved Florida writer owned. Carrie Todd is park ranger at Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings Historic State Park. She always described it as a rambling farmhouse, um... Maybe a little shabby chic is the way to talk about it. It's white with green lattice on the bottom, and it's got it's 3,000 square feet, four bedrooms, two bathrooms, so it's large, but it doesn't seem large. It seems just sort of rambling when you're trying to go through it. 
Although famous for her stories about rural life in Florida, Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings was not a native. She was born in Washington, D.C. and attended college at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, graduating in 1918. She lived in Louisville, Kentucky and Rochester, New York before moving to Florida with her husband, Charles Rawlings, in 1928. The couple planned to support themselves with the orange trees on their property, allowing them to write in a beautiful, serene, rural setting. They were both writers. They both were going to write novels, and they thought it was going to be an easy time to make money with that citrus crop. You know, just, oh, it'll grow itself. They won't have to do much. And it was a booming industry then, so they thought they were going to strike it big and then have all this time to write, which, of course, wasn't the case, but Marjorie seemed to do pretty well. Growing citrus was a lot more work than the couple had anticipated. Charles Rawlings grew tired of life in the country, and the two were divorced. Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings felt a connection to her Florida land and stayed there to write. Marjorie walked through the rusty old gate and immediately fell in love. The book Cross Creek she often describes as like a love story to a place. But Charles Rawlings, I think, had a completely different idea about what this was going to be. He thought he was going to be a gentleman farmer, um, where Marjorie saw charm in the sort of rusticness. He saw the lack of paint and the lack of screens and the lack of electricity and the lack of running water. And he hadn't been as successful as a writer, even for the magazines that he was trying to publish. So when Marjorie hit it big, you know, he maybe was a little jealous and, you know, things weren't working out as well for him. Rawlings first attempted to write gothic romance novels, but could not interest publishers in her work. Literary editor Maxwell Perkins was fascinated with Rawlings' letters and stories about her life in rural Florida and encouraged her to write a novel about that. Maxwell Perkins, the editor of Genius, as some people call him, saw one little story called Cracker Chitlins in Scribner's Magazine and knew that Marjorie was on to something, that she had this really great talent, and he got her to, you know, take the notes and the little bits she had been writing down ever since she first stepped into Florida and turn it into a book, um, The Yearling particularly, but she has eight novels and 26 short stories about Florida. So she had a lot of material to work with, and he definitely helped shape those stories into the greatness that they are. Rawlings' most popular book, The Yearling, won the Pulitzer Prize for Literature in 1939 and was made into a very successful film starring Gregory Peck and Jane Wyman in 1946. Her 1942 autobiography, Cross Creek, was adapted for a 1983 film starring Mary Steenburgen. Rawlings wrote many other stories about life in Florida. Florence Turcott is literary manuscripts archivist at the University of Florida Special Collections. She began with the encouragement of her editor, Maxwell Perkins, of Charles Scribner's Sons, a extensive career basing her literary imagination and focusing her, her efforts on stories about the Cracker people. She began by publishing a collection of uh, vignettes called Cracker Chidlings and um, continued with, very successfully along that same vein with a, um, her first novel, which was called South Moon Under, which is based literally on visits and time that she spent living with people in the Ocala National Forest, in the Big Scrub, as she called it, um, and characterized their lives and their struggles in these very compelling stories, which were very successful. 
Not everyone was pleased with Rawlings' work. Zelma Kaysen, a Cross Creek resident who was described by Rawlings in unflattering terms, sued the writer for invasion of privacy, eventually winning $1 in damages. Marjorie Rawlings used the real names of uh, her friends and neighbors in her semi-autobiographical book, Cross Creek, which was published in 1942. In this particular case, Zelma Kaysen, who Marjorie considered a very close friend of hers, she sued Marjorie for originally for libel and then kind of morphed into an invasion of privacy charge that was leveled against Marjorie for the characterization of her Zelma in Cross Creek as an ageless spinster who resembles a canary. She was a diminutive person, she was lively, and Marjorie thought that that was a good characterization of her. Um, in addition to the remarks about her physical appearance and her marital status, there was also reference to her propensity to use profanity, and all of which of these allegations Zelma took grave umbrage to. <laughs> so her charges were leveled um, quickly, soon after the book was published, and they engaged in a legal battle, which took more than five years to resolve, and which ended in a Florida Supreme Court ruling, finding in favor of the plaintiff, in favor of Kaysen, but awarding damages of $1. So Rawlings was devastated by this outcome, not because of the financial burden, but because of the lack of vote of confidence that was implied by the negative ruling. And of course, Kaysen was disappointed in that she received no compensation for her trouble. After the trial, Rawlings was so upset by the outcome that she never wrote about Florida again. At the outcome of the trial, she was very discouraged and vowed never to write about Florida again. And in fact, she never did publish anything set until she died in 1953. There was never anything else published about Florida. She was writing her novel, The Sojourner, which was set in the Midwest uh, at the time. And um, when she died, she had just finished writing The Sojourner. So, so indeed, she made good on her promise not to write about Florida again. Maxwell Perkins worked with Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald, among others, but Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings' best literary friend was Zora Neale Hurston. Carrie Todd. Yes, she was visited by Zora Neale Hurston, and they both bonded over uh, what they called picture talk, or the rich, thick descriptions of life here in Florida. Of course, Zora is a famous Florida writer and Marjorie is a famous Florida writer. And so they had a lot to really talk about. Um, but Marjorie knew a lot of famous writers through uh, Maxwell Perkins, particularly, but through the big writing scene, the 20s and 30s. Rawlings' maid, Idella Parker, wrote a book about her experience working for Rawlings called Idella, Marjorie Rawlings' Perfect Maid. Idella was the woman who worked for her probably the longest uh, as a maid, and was a fascinating woman in her own right. She didn't start writing books until she was in her 70s, and she went on a huge lecture circuit after she wrote those. She was active in the Rawlings Society, you know, and did a lot of really fabulous things on her own. And they definitely had a almost an equal relationship, which was interesting for the time, being a black woman and a white woman. So it was it's neat that she also got some, I guess, literary credit for the time she spent with Marjorie. 
A visit to the Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings House provides a unique view of both life in old Florida and the life of one of the state's most loved writers. So people come for a lot of different reasons. We get a lot of people who love Marjorie Rawlings, of course. They're making a pilgrimage of some kind. We have a lot of people that come because this is old Florida. You know, it's we've really tried to preserve Florida from the 1920s and 30s. You know, we dress in period costume. We have chickens and ducks running around. And the best compliment I can get is, oh, you remind me so much of my grandmother. So we get those people. And then we get people who are just driving down the highway looking for something really cool to see and they see our sign and they stop by. And school children, because Marjorie is of course a great Floridian, they study her in fourth grade, they study her in eighth grade, and so we try to get as many school kids out here as we can. In 1941, Rawlings married Norton Baskin, living in both the St. Augustine area and Cross Creek. He operated the Castle Warden Hotel, it's now the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum, so you can go still see it. And uh, she did live in St. Augustine with him most of the time and came back to Cross Creek to write. She could only write here. This was really her place of inspiration. The Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings House is located in Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings Historic State Park on County Road 325 in Hawthorne, Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, find out about upcoming broadcasts of the television series Florida Frontiers, and read our weekly blog. While you're there, take a moment to become a member of the Florida Historical Society to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, the Society Report, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. She's between the highs and lows In subtropic windy blows The Everglades lives As the grassy warmer flows in the shallow she's between Where the damaged Mars is seen From Big Lake Okeechobee She's a slow move in the stream Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas opens her 1947 book Everglades River of Grass saying... There are no other Everglades in the world. Ben, you have in your archive an even earlier account of the Everglades. Yeah, that's right. You know, the Everglades has represented this mysterious wilderness for uh, centuries of, of Floridians. People have traveled to Florida, but this southern section of the state has remained uh, essentially unmapped. In fact, if you look at sectional maps from the 1870s and 1880s, there's a huge portion of the peninsula that simply says needs to be surveyed. So it was completely, really still unexplored uh, into the late 19th century. And what we're talking about today is a expedition that was undertaken in 1898 by a gentleman by the name of Hugh de la Salle Willoughby. 
Uh, and Willoughby is an interesting character. He's not a native Floridian, but he spent some 20 years in Florida prior to this expedition, usually during the wintertime, as many people did. He was the son of a wealthy banker. According to some early biographers, he never really held a real job. Uh, he was uh, kind of born into wealth and became a sportsman, uh, which was typical of late Victorian age young men. They, they tended to go out and uh, hunt and fish and explore. But he was uh, fascinated much more than that. He was fascinated in the sciences graduated from the University of Pennsylvania in 1877. He was a collegiate athlete and was involved in, in a lot of early inventions as well, including inventing a lot of material that would go in, later go into uh, aircraft manufacturing. Uh, but he was fascinated with the Everglades and decided that he would succeed where others had failed, particularly some contemporary expeditions, one in 1883 by Major A.P. Williams and a later expedition in 1892 by J.E. Ingram. And that second expedition was an attempt to create some kind of passage or trail between the southwestern coast of Florida and the southeastern coast of Florida, specifically Miami. Uh, the Ingram expedition included dozens of men, tons of material, and was fraught from the very beginning with hardship. And they barely, many of the members of the expedition barely survived uh, when they crossed from Fort Myers into Miami. So Willoughby decided to learn from those mistakes and attempt another crossing in 1898. And we have here from your archive a first edition of Willoughby's book. Yeah, that's right. This was published in late 1898. It's entitled Across the Everglades, uh, again, written entirely by Hugh Willoughby. Uh, what's great about this book, not only do we uh, have this wonderful narrative, but Willoughby also brought with him a black and white camera, and he took hundreds of photos, and included in this book are some 50 plates, most of which include him holding a gun. They were obviously posed photographs, but it gives us an idea of the landscape that, uh, that he was dealing with. Now, a lot of earlier expeditions would start from the eastern side, the more uh, developed side of Florida, the eastern coast, and then head west. Well, Willoughby decided that he would start from the western edge that was less explored, the 10,000 Islands region, and head east. This way, he thought if he just continued to head east, he would at one point run into Henry Flagler's railroad uh, and might survive the expedition. So they put in in early January uh, along the Harney River, uh, he and another navigator, he actually hired uh, a gentleman he had been hunting with for many years in Florida. And they started out with two canvas canoes uh, loaded down with supplies. Now, I mentioned that Willoughby was an inventor. He actually brought with him this very ingenious device called a cyclometer. And the cyclometer would actually, it was attached to the side of the canoe and it had, it was a bicycle wheel. It had these small paddles that would spin and then record the distance. So as they canoed through the Everglades, he could take daily measurements, record their distance. He also brought with them a sextant, which is a, an instrument used to determine one's location based on celestial objects. So every night he would take these readings. Now, again, this was more of a scientific expedition than it was kind of a, a fun exploit. He captured a number of specimens that he then sent back to the University of Pennsylvania. And a lot of these scientific measurements, the location measurements, uh, he would later hand over to the federal government for use in map making. You know, the goal for him was to encourage development or at least an understanding of the Everglades. Which brings me to an interesting point. Now, uh, in the late 19th century, the push at least towards the Everglades was for development, for modernity. The idea was that man could drain the swamps and could develop this vast wasteland that we knew very little of that was filled with mosquitoes, diseases, and Seminole Indians. Well, Willoughby wanted to learn as much as he could, at least about uh, this vast expanse. Now, he does, uh, seems to be sort of in keeping with that trend. He says, quote here, in the nature of things, the wilderness must be gradually approached upon. 
What would the settler and the farmer do without this railroad that now gives him rapid communication with the North for the, his winter products, unquote? So he had an idea that development was inevitable, at least in Florida. But in that same vein, later in the book, he gives us a, a kind of a different impression that he understood more, that the Everglades was more than just a swamp. He says here, quote, the popular impression has always been that the Everglades is a huge swamp full of malaria and disease germs. There were certainly nothing in our surroundings that would remind one of a swamp. Around the shores of the little islands, the mud may be a trifle soft, but the pure water is running over it, and no stagnant pools can be found. In the daytime, the cool breeze has an undisturbed sweep, and the water is protected from overheating by the shade the grass affords, unquote. And throughout the book, Willoughby alludes to the Everglades as a massive moving body of water, uh, which, Ben, you gave us a quote earlier from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, who is, is credited, of course, with helping to preserve the Everglades and also notice this trend. But it seems that even at this point in 1898, there was a, an understanding that this region was much more complicated and that the ecosystem uh, very much relied on this natural hydrology, the flowing of the Everglades south. It was a massive essentially river that moves south along the southern peninsula. And it, it seems that, that he at least had some early theories about that. What else do we know about Willoughby besides his trip through the Everglades? Well, the book itself is fascinating. And if Willoughby would have died a day after this book was published, I think uh, he would have had a lengthy obituary. But he went on, as I mentioned, he was involved in early airplane design. He was actually uh, working with the Wright brothers and designed the rudder that was later used on the Wright brothers' first airplane. He ended up with dozens of patents, actually, that were used in early aviation. He was one of the first Americans to hold a pilot's license. Uh, he was flying planes as late as his 70s, uh, and he was involved in innovation and, and inventing and pushing the limits. He was also involved in early auto racing in Florida. Uh, the Daytona Ormond area, of course, is famous now as the birthplace of speed. Well, Hugh Willoughby was right on the forefront. He entered a number of cars in the 1904-1905 races. Never won, uh, but was there nonetheless. He was involved in bicycle innovations as well. So he was just an interesting guy. He lived in Florida. He had a house, at least, in St. Augustine for most of his life. He died in 1939, but lived in Rhode Island and New York as well, but still came down to Florida and wintered here as well. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. She's between the highs and lows In some tropic windy blows Everglades lives As the grassy river flows The Everglades lives As the grassy river flows This is Florida Frontiers. The election of Florida Governor Sidney Katz in 1916 was almost as divisive as the 2016 election season. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has more. He was like many Southern demagogues, and I divide them into two categories. There are the Southern demagogues who were just done nothing but bigots and racists and religious uh, idiots. And then there were demagogues who used demagoguery as a device to win political power and aspired to reforms and changes in the uh, in the political system in Florida. Prison reforms, education reforms, trying to make government more responsive to sharecroppers and poor people in general. 
And I would put cats in the latter of those two categories. That was Dr. J. Wayne Flint, who wrote the book, Cracker Messiah, Governor Sidney J. Katz of Florida. We spoke about the 1916 election for governor. We often hear in the media about how the presidential election of 2016 is shaping up to be one of the most divisive elections in recent history. But the election of 1916 was one such similar election in Florida, with the candidate Sidney Katz, who reporters and later historians labeled a demagogue for his attacks on immigrants and Catholics during his run for office. Here, Dr. Flint tells me about the election of 1916. The 1916 campaign has to be the most amazing uh, political race, major political race in Florida political history. For one thing, Sidney Katz was a virtual newcomer. He'd only been in the state several years. Number two, uh, he had no prominent position. He had no circle of political acquaintances. He didn't even have a political party, although he had been a Democrat and actually run for Congress against a Democrat in Alabama and lost. Uh, In Florida, he just had no political organization at all. Of course, the uh, Democratic Party had routinely, since Reconstruction, won every election pretty much without challenge. And the uh, assumption was you win the uh, Democratic primary, you're automatically going to be governor. Katz, after winning the most votes in the Democratic primary election, the state party decided to select William Knott instead as its candidate for governor. Katz then ran as an independent under the Prohibition Party. Since this was the time of one-party rule in Florida, the election of the Democratic candidate out of the primary almost guaranteed that candidate winning the general election. Almost. So his philosophy was to blame whatever was wrong, wherever he happened to be, on the uh, conservative wing of the Democratic Party and its refusal to uh, stand up for the little people, and number two, uh, the Catholic menace and the immigration menace. And that played extremely well in the campaign. And then the campaign had first and second choice votes, and that made it difficult uh, The uh, campaign also had a sort of attitude that once the Democratic candidate got the nomination, everything was over, and the machine that ran the Democratic Party had already decided who they wanted. So the result of this was that he uh, snuck up on the uh, Democratic establishment, and it was very much like uh, 2016, and an awful lot of people who had never voted in Florida Uh, never paid poll taxes, never been interested in politics, Uh, went to the polls to stop all this outrageous stuff that was going on. I wanted to know about the charges of demagoguery. Dr. Flynn explains. What complicates that a little bit is the terrible religious demagoguery that he used uh, about a Catholic menace that threatened to take over the state of Florida. His plugging into Tom Watson and the Jeffersonian magazine, which were as bigoted as you could find in American religion at the time. And finally, his uh, his association later on with gambling interests when he became really cynical about what he considered to be fraud, denying him the right to uh, be governor or United States senator in 1920. And at that point, uh, he basically just became a cynic who worked with gambling interests in South Florida was accused of uh, being involved with a counterfeit ring in Tampa. So uh, his demagoguery is certainly there, but I think it's fairly complicated. Finally, I asked Dr. Flint to compare the 1916 campaign to the 2016 campaign for president. 
I think there is definitely parallel, uh, a parallel, many parallels, in fact, between the Trump campaign, uh, angry constituency of people like sharecroppers and, and others who felt like they were being left behind, that they had no educational status and, and qualities and opportunities. What is missing, I think, in Trump is the idea of any kind of reform where you're using the demagoguery and you're using the political uh, opportunism toward an end that would actually help common people. That was Dr. J. Wayne Flint, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen online at myfloridahistory.org or as a podcast. Don't miss the television series, Florida Frontiers. More information is at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.